0: Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the LN Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Rachel Rudinger, who is a final year PhD student at Johns Hopkins University, studying with Ben Van derme. She's done a lot of work on natural language understanding, particularly common sense inference, uh, semantic parsing, knowledge acquisition from text, these kinds of things. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: And today we're going to talk about a paper that you published at NACL 2018 called "Neural Mod- Models of Factuality" with Aaron White at the University of Rochester and your advisor Ben Vanderwende. Mm-hmm. So I guess the where we should start here is talking about what factuality is and how it relates to people that how it relates to things that people might be familiar with because I think this is more of a less well known kind of phenomenon. Do you want to tell us about what this is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what we're concerned with here is the task of event factuality prediction, and what that is simply is determining whether some event mentioned in text happened or not. We're just simply asking the question, did it happen? And note that this is with respect to uh, the author's perspective. So Uh, Did the event happen according to the author uh, rather than some absolute real world truth? Um, And I think this is easiest to understand with respect to um, a few simple examples. So I'll just start out with a few examples. Um, So consider the sentences uh, Pat watered the plants and Pat did not water the plants. Uh, Both of these are referring to a watering event, but of course in the first case um, that watering event happened and in the second one it didn't. Of course event factuality prediction is uh, much broader uh, than just negation detection. Um, It actually encompasses a lot of very interesting um, diverse linguistic features that are going to play a role in the determination of factuality. So I think it, it would be helpful to perhaps run through a few examples of the different types of linguistic features that are going to play a role in factuality. So I think the perhaps the best studied of these um, are these various types of clause embedding verbs, like veridicals, non-veriticals, factives, implicatives. Consider, for example, the difference between um, Pat failed to water the plants and Pat did not fail to water the plants. In that case, um, failed is going to flip the uh, factuality of the embedded clause, and when fail is under negation, um, that flips the. Ne- the uh, polarity again. So Pat did not fail to water the plants means that Pat did water the plants. Um, And so there's uh, a lot of different kinds of behaviors that linguists have uh, categorized under these different types of clause embedding verbs. Um, But there's a lot of other features that we would want to be interested in as well. So for example, uh, modal auxiliaries, Pat could water the plants. Uh, We're going to be concerned with um, epistemic modals. So like Pat probably watered the plants or Pat definitely watered the plants um, and evidentials. So things like John heard that Pat watered the plant. Adjectives like Pat was glad to water the plants means that Pat watered the plants. Quantifiers as well. So things like Pat watered all of the plants. So a watering event happened versus Pat watered none of the plants. Um, We can even get into things like nouns. Uh, So Pat's watering the plants was a hallucination. This sounds like it's going to be uh, factual all the way up and all the way until we get up to the word hallucination and we realize that it's not factual. Um, And I think one other one other interesting thing I'll throw in is that um, even holding a lexical item constant, you can just slightly vary the syntactic frame that, a, um, that it occurs in, and that, will have an in- that could also have an impact on factuality. So an example here is something like, um, with the verb remember, we can have a sentence like, Pat did not remember to water the plants. That means the plants didn't get watered. Um, but Pat did not remember that she'd watered the plants means that it did happen. And so just by changing that one uh, syntactic feature, you actually get a different result. Um, so I think that this is why event factuality is really an interesting task, is that it's, it's very simple to explain, but in fact, it gives us this window into a lot of very interesting uh, diverse linguistic phenomena. Um, so from a linguistic perspective, it's very interesting. Um, but I think it also has applications for um, uh, useful NLP tasks as well. Um, and I can get into some of that as well.
0: Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit more about the linguistic stuff first. Um, you, you gave a really nice overview. Uh, I wonder how this plays with like presupposition.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Is there any? Are there any interactions here?
1: So, um, factive verbs like know are going to trigger a presupposition, and so that means like if we say John knows that Pat watered the plants, presupposes that. Pat watered the plants, because we can put this under negation and say, uh, John does not know that Pat watered the plants. So this is a, a standard test for presupposition. And it still um, gives us the result that Pat watered the plants.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, I guess that uh, I feel like there are a, there are a lot of NLP people who don't really study linguistics or y- you've used a lot of words so far that I think they wouldn't be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's nice to give a, a good explanation of what's going on here. It's actually pretty complicated to know what things are actually being asserted. It's not straightforward in a lot, in a lot of cases.
1: Right. Absolutely. And so there is, um, we are interested in uh, different ways of getting at the inferences that you'd want to make. So some of these are going to come from presuppositions, like in the case of no, um, and others will be uh, entailments or even impl- implicatures. Um, so you're right. That's very interesting. Um, and, and it's sort of the intersection of all of these
0: There were a few examples in your paper that I I wanted to dig into a little bit more because there are a few, uh, some issues that I'm still not totally clear on and that seem a little ambiguous. So, so you said one of the examples is Joe, Joe failed to leave no trace. Mm -hmm. So here, what event are you talking about? It it seems to me like there are possibly multiple events that you could be talking about when you're looking at factuality. Mm -hmm. So what what is it that we're looking at in this sentence?
1: So so first consider the case where uh, Joe left something behind. That's certainly something that could happen. So if we imagine that we're in some context, like Joe broke into a bank in the middle of the night and Joe left behind fingerprints and therefore was caught by the police. That's sort of the positive version of that event, leaving behind something. And so leaving no trace means that that leaving didn't happen. I don't know if that <laughs> answers your question.
0: Yep, yep. And then would you also consider a, that failed? Is there a failing event that it, that has some notion of factuality or is that not considered?
1: Uh, I see. So I think what you're saying is, can we frame a negative event as an event in and of itself?
0: Yeah, I guess I'm I'm, I'm even just trying to understand what is the task here? Because it, there there are a few different ways where you could define these events, right?
1: Right, so I think we're starting off with a sort of um, commonsensical notion of some event happening, um, having some sort of manifestation, and uh, we can also talk about the absence of that manifestation. So, for example, um, you know, we talk about we say things like "it didn't rain," um, and that's uh, clearly something that conveys information, um, but we're talking about the absence of an event um, or the fact that it didn't happen. Um, so I, I think. That is uh, kind of what we're getting at here. Is you know we have a base sense of um, some event can happen, but we can also observe that it didn't happen.
0: Okay, and then something like I failed the test is in fact a failing event uh, it could, because that's that's something that was actualized. Is that am I understanding that right?
1: Sure. Um. Yeah. I guess a lot of this has to do with you know the lexicon and what kinds of uh events we we decide to uh draw a, a concept around. So we we can have a concept of failing as an event where, you know, it's that condition is met. If uh, you, um, your score was below a certain grade, you know, if you, you got a 55 or something um, could qualify as failing. Um, so, so you're right that, that it could depend on the way that you frame it, that in some cases, a negative event could qualify as a, a positive kind of other event. Uh, but it's, in our case, what we're looking at is we're sort of we're we're sticking very close to the actual um, lexical items in the sentence. And so, um, if the if it's written in terms of Joe failed to leave no trace, then we're looking at is what we're looking at is the leaving event.
0: So, concretely, the uh, each event in the data sets that you looked into is one word in the sentence. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Right. So what we're looking at is um, the heads of predicates, and this is all determined. So, so all of our data is um, on top of universal dependency parses. And so we just extract one token that uh, corresponds to some predicate or the head of a predicate.
0: And any uh, head of a predicate would be a, a valid input to the model?
1: So, so when we actually did the annotation, and I'll, I'll get into this more later, um, we extracted uh, predicate candidates... Um, to label. And we had uh, mechanical Turk workers verify that those actually did correspond to predicates and that the extraction was done correctly. Um, What we're actually modeling here, I I should be clear that uh, we're just, our task here is given some predicate. So given some target predicate, we have to decide whether or not it's factual, but we're not doing the separate task of event detection in this case.
0: Great. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. So Get in, in a sentence like Joe failed to leave no trace. Something somewhere is going to decide for us what events I should care about, mm-hmm. and then given that event, which maybe is a leaving a trace event, uh, I'm going to build a model to say, does the sentence imply that this happened or not? That's right. That's correct. Or, or or to what extent does it? Because we could have we could have like a degree here with like probably or could have or whatever, right? Exactly. So that's what's that's what's going on. Okay. So then. Um, I think we've got a good handle on what exactly you're trying to do here. Uh, Do you want to tell us about what data people use to do this kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, there are a few uh, existing uh, event factuality data sets. I'll first describe the data set that we constructed, and then I'll uh, sort of um, compare a few of these. Um, So our new data set, it's called It Happened, and it's part of the Universal Decompositional Semantics Initiative, um, or UDS. And what UDS is, is it's this uh, collaboration that we have between a few universities where we're layering on different uh, semantic annotations on top of universal dependencies. And so we're sort of farming out the issue of uh, syntactic structure to the universal dependencies and a a predicate argument extraction tool that we have that runs on top of the universal dependencies. It's called uh, PredPAT, and it's just a rule-based system. And then separately, we want to um, annotate various semantic labels on top of these predicates and arguments. Um, And we're doing this in a decompositional way, which means that um, multiple labels can potentially apply. And we're interested in uh, targeting very relatively simple uh, labels that can be translated into simple questions that could be answered by uh, crowdsource workers. And this is sort of in contrast to these uh, larger um, uh, fixed ontologies where you might need to train an expert to uh, know the ontology well to, to decide which one correct label to apply. So instead, we're sort of breaking it up into these different uh, properties. And so one of these is factuality. And so getting back to the It Happened data set, this is a data set that covers about 27,000 predicates for factuality. That's, as far as we know, about twice the size of uh, the next largest factuality data set. And this covers all of the English Web Tree Bank um, in the universal dependencies. Um, And that has different genres like blogs, reviews, emails, um, as well as news groups. Um, And the way that we get these labels, as I've already mentioned, is through crowdsourcing. And so we already talked about the um, predicate verification. So we uh, Use PredPat to identify the candidate predicates, and we verified those with crowdsource workers. Um, we we also asked first, you know, does the sentence make sense? So we, we presented a sentence, asked, does it make sense? Um, Is the highlighted word a predicate? And then the real um, the main questions of interest are did uh, did that event happen? So we're asking about factuality, and that's just a binary yes no question in our protocol. Um, and then we ask for a confidence score between zero and four. So in the end, we have just a binary label plus a confidence score. Um, now, there are three other factuality datasets that we were looking at in this work. Um, and this was very much based on some work by Stanowski et al. 2017 in uh, creating a unified factuality data set, basically taking uh, pre-existing factuality data sets. So that includes FactBank, a uh, data from the University of Washington, and Meantime, um, and sort of mapping all of their labels onto a unified negative three to three scale. So where positive three is going to be um, definitely happened, the most factual end, um, and negative three is definitely didn't happen. Um, and I think this borrows from the original labeling system of the University of Washington data set. Um, and what's interesting is that when we look at, so having all of these data sets mapped to negative three to three. So we also did that for our own data set. We mapped using the confidence scores and the polarity to map onto that minus three to three scale scale. Um, looking at the distribution over these labels, uh, one thing that we notice is that uh, FactBank, UW, and Meantime are all uh, very skewed toward the positive end of the scale. So it's very um, factual heavy. And our data set also has that skewed to some extent, but um, in contrast, there is a lot more... um, It's a more entropic distribution, and we have uh, more representation at the negative end of the scale. And we think that that's... um, basically a result of having um, a different uh, genre coverage, where uh, FactBank, UW, and Meantime, these other data sets are more focused on uh, Newswire data. So
0: can we back up just a minute and talk about this um, confidence judgment by the crowd workers? Sure. Yeah. So uh, let's say I see a sentence like, um, Joe probably failed the test. Mm-hmm. That's a failing event, mm-hmm. but it says probably. Mm-hmm. so. Uh, how would how would you expect a crowd worker to label this? Did it happen?
1: Uh, so I think that uh, sort of what one issue that that any protocol is going to run into is that there's uh, many different sources of uncertainty. So there can be uncertainty just from the uh, linguistic content of the sentence. So what what is the author attesting to? So the, the author is saying this event probably happened um, or Uh, There could just be annotator uncertainty on the basis of, you know, some ambiguity or um, any other issue that arises that that causes annotator uh, uncertainty. And so one choice is to try to meet all of these out into, um, you know, try to say, you know, what's uh, what's uncertainty from the text in and of itself? Um, What's uncertainty uh, based on some other linguistic features like tense um, or modality? Um, And what's uh, uh, confidence, you know, what's your own confidence rating on top of all of that? And that's a little bit complicated. So we chose to just sort of um, uh, smush it all into one confidence rating. Uh, And so um, uh, I would expect um, that that might be a positive rating with uh, a low confidence. Um, But yeah, either way, uh, you can sort of choose between having a very complicated protocol or conflating these issues?
0: Yeah, I guess you're forcing someone to make a binary decision—yes, no—on something that is inherently uncertain, mm-hmm. uh, which seems interesting because I, I don't know if it's probably yeah. Like there, I guess language allows a threshold of certainty that you express as, as a speaker, right? Mm-hmm. And and what you're saying when you say the annotator has to pick yes no you're you're saying the annotator has to impose mm-hmm. a particular threshold on that spectrum and maybe different annotators will put that threshold somewhere else it seems a little bit tricky to mm-hmm. get consistency in annotation there uh any any thoughts on that i guess that 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 sounds like an argument to me for having a minus 3 to 3 rating like the other data sets that you talked about instead of having this separation
1: i think either way you have somewhat of a problem Um, just because uh, either way you have a a bit of a calibration issue and um, when you you still have uh, the ability to express a confidence so um, either way uh, we would expect the rating to be um, you know after scaling somewhat closer to zero
0: okay yeah that, that makes a lot of sense so like I, yes, I forced the, the person to pick a binary thing, but that's just going to be the sign on something that has a very small value in the first place. And so may, maybe the annotator in the negative three to three sense would have put this somewhere between negative one and one. Uh, in your setting, it'll be kind of random whether they pick yes or no, but they'll have picked a low confidence value. And so it'll be in the same range in the end anyway.
1: Right. And and I think that even even if you're doing a minus three to three scale, you know, the annotator still has to pick you know, decide, has to make a binary choice about whether or not it's going to be positive or negative, you know, is it greater than zero or less than zero. So I, I'm not sure that using a minus three to three scale, you know, really escapes it. I think either way, you're you're going to have that sort of issue. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. Okay. And before I interrupted you, we were telling us about these data sets. I I guess one question that I still had is, uh Maybe this is going back a little bit to even the, the linguistic phenomena he, phenomenon that we're looking at here. what What kinds of features in this data set might help you decide factuality? Does that question make sense? Um, like what what kinds of things would you be looking at as a linguist, as an annotator trying to decide if a particular event was factual or not?
1: Uh, so I think I think it gets back to a lot of the examples that I gave um, in the beginning. So those are uh, various kinds of lexical cues. Uh, or even syntactic cues that are going to um, uh, influence um, the annotation. But I think the the idea behind our annotation scheme is not to have uh, really trained um, experts who are you know looking for very specific features, but rather um, these are sentences that can be understood by any speaker of English, and so um, any sort of common sense understanding should enable a, an annotator to decide whether an event happened or not. So they may, may or may not be aware of the specific uh, you know features that are, are firing.
0: Okay. Um, so then I guess to summarize the discussion that we've had so far, we've talked about uh, factuality as a linguistic phenomenon, that uh, there's some process somehow that that gets us from language to a set of events. And then for each event, we want to judge whether or not the the person who spoke the language is is asserting that this event factually happened or not. That's right. And then you've told us about a data set that you've constructed and, and some others that other people have constructed mm-hmm. to um let us build models to actually test this. Uh and by construction, these data sets do both go from language to a set of events using some process right. and then uh and then label the actual events as factual or not. Uh, And then I guess now's a good time to to talk about what kind of models people use to try to solve this task. You want to tell us about that?
1: Sure. So um, a lot of prior work on this has been based on uh, using uh, rule-based systems um, that sort of capture uh, various linguistic theories about um, how factuality is determined. Um, So one thing that we see in in a lot of prior work um are these uh type level uh uh, implicature implication signatures um that are going to uh so so a verb that has an embedded clause um that embedded clause can be positive or negative um, on the basis of what type of verb is embedding it and whether that verb is under negation and so you can come up with these uh, one place or two place uh, negation, um, implication signatures that uh, describe that behavior. And then what a lot of these systems do is sort of starting at the top of a parse tree um, with a positive um, polarity at the top, at the root, um, you kind of work your way down the tree and uh, every time you hit one of these signatures, you, based on the current polarity, decide what the new polarity is and uh, sort of propagate your way down the tree. Uh, and so that's sort of what a lot of these uh, rule-based systems look like. And um, more recently, there have been there's been some work, um, I think by let's see, uh, Lee et al. 2015 and Stanovsky et al. 2017 on using more feature-based systems or combining rule-based systems with feature-based systems, um, and you know passing through passing these through um, some kind of uh, support vector regression. Um and as far as I know this is this is the first work that's trying to do uh this task with neural models um and so I can get into uh some of the details about what what we actually implemented here. Sure, that'd be great yeah so uh one thing uh we mentioned is that the uh there's outside context and inside context, and those are going to be things like um Clause embedding verbs for outside context or nouns for inside context, like hallucination. Um, and there's a lot of examples of uh, cases where it would be important to look both above and below the verb of interest in the syntax tree. And so what we're doing um, is we're working with uh, bidirectional neural networks. Um, and I should just mention that the, the kind of philosophy that we have here is not to um, develop the most... Uh, fancy or complicated uh, network possible to do this task, but rather to focus on relatively simple architectures that we think might be able to uh, be capable of doing the the factuality detection test um, and pushing those as far as they can go and see what they're capable of. So in that spirit, we're dealing entirely with bidirectional recurrent neural networks. And we have three different models. We have a linear BILSTM, just the standard implementation. Um, a dependency tree by LSTM, so that's um, notable for for being a a bidirectional tree LSTM on top of dependency tree structure. Um, And then finally, we tested um, a hybrid version where we just concatenated the states from the linear model and the tree model um, and trained that end to end. Um, And so to actually do the uh, factuality prediction on this minus three to three score for any of these models we take the hidden state of interest that corresponds to the token that we want to make the prediction on. And we just pass that hidden state through a two-layer um, MLP. Um, we use the smooth L1 loss and train it end-to-end. Um, and I should also note that we used glove embeddings for the embedding layer. So that's that's basically the structure of the networks. Um, fairly simple, um, but they work actually fairly well.
0: Yeah, I guess lots of people have said these days that if you want to do NLP, what you should do is Take your text, use some kind of glove embedding. I guess these days it would be Elmo, mm-hmm. then uh, run a, a couple of bidirectional LSTMs on top of your data and then predict what you want to predict. And sounds like that's exactly what you're doing here.
1: Yeah, I think that our uh, results would support that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you want to tell us about how well it works?
1: Yeah, sure. So what we found generally was um, a little bit to our surprise that the linear model um, generally was outperforming the tree model. Um, we thought that the tree model might do well just because of the basis of these rule-based systems um, that have, you know, this uh, percolating down the tree of the, of the polarity. Um, but in general, the, the linear model worked, worked better. Um, and we did find, though, that um, the hybrid model in some cases was um, able to outperform either the tree or the linear. So I think that does suggest that uh, to a certain extent, the tree model is contributing something Um, and I can get into a little bit of the details of, you know, what, uh, what might be going on there. Um, we also ran some, uh, you know, multitask experiments that I can talk about. Um, so
0: I guess, I guess first, is there a high level picture of like how well this works? If I, if given a random sentence, do I get it right most of the time? How far, how far off are we?
1: So, um, so it depends on the data set. Um, we measured performance in terms of correlation. over so we also reported on uh, mean absolute error, but we think that correlation is a, is a little bit of a better measure, uh, just because some of these data sets have different distributions, so that controls for that a little better.
0: Yeah, yeah. When the data is highly skewed, uh, an absolute accuracy is not always the best metric.
1: Right, and in some of these, the 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 uh, data is so skewed that um, just a baseline of all th- just guessing three all the time um, has a very very low uh, mean absolute error. Um, and so I think that, yeah, correlation is is a little bit more informative. Um, just to give a sense, like, in general, we're doing somewhere uh, on the larger data sets in, in the 0.7, 0.8 range on correlation.
0: Is there, uh, is there any intuition for what 0.8 correlation means? Um, I don't think I have any myself, like... I, I just have a hard time placing like, how good is that?
1: Let me ask, let me rephrase the question in a way that we often think about <laughs> sure, sure.
0: in my project. Would you feel comfortable integrating this uh, model as part of a production
1: system? Um, I mean, I think that, I think that's a very context specific question. So I, you know, it's, I would certainly want to test it out in whatever application, uh, you wanted to use it in. So de- depending on, uh, you know, what, what the downstream task is, you know, I, I think that sort of depends on that. Yeah. I don't know if that <laughs> answers your question. I I, yeah. I, I think, I guess, I guess briefly, I, I would say that, you know, I think we've, we've shown some definite improvements, um, on this task, but I, I wouldn't call it solved. That's that's what I would say. <laughs>
0: One thing I've been thinking about recently is how uh, if you have large data sets, mm-hmm. and I train, I split this large data set into train and test, and evaluate just on this data set data, on this test set that's in the same distribution as my train set, I might not get a good performance, a good picture of how performance is like in in the wild mm-hmm. when I would actually want to use this thing. And I wonder if you've thought about, like, a building a small diagnostic data set for this, where it, it's small, so you wouldn't um, train on this thing. But after having trained on it, you could, like, probe and see if this is actually capturing what we want from a linguistic sense. Has anyone done this?
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, we have. Um, this is actually one of our upcoming uh, papers at EMNLP on lexicosyntactic inference in neural models. And uh, this is uh, a work with Aaron White um, and Kyle Rollins and Ben Van uh, So basically, we have this data set. It's, it's called megaviridicality. And the idea is that you take all of these different uh, clause embedding verbs of interest and drop them into a bunch of different uh, different syntactic frames. And so it's It's really a type level data set, um, and we fill in the sentence with really um, semantically bleached arguments. So you would get sentences that look like um, someone verbed that some that a particular thing happened. Um, and so we just have a bunch of these very generic uh, semantically bleached sentences um, that test out different clause embedding verbs in different syntactic frames. And what we find is that um, there are a lot of cases that these models don't do very well on. Um, And another interesting thing that uh, these experiments revealed is that um, where we had originally thought that the uh, linear model was doing much better than the tree model, it actually turns out that on this targeted uh, type level data set, uh, the the tree model does a little better. And this, I think, is sort of a result of the tree and the linear models doing well on complementary syntactic frames. And so the distribution in this type level data set, of course, doesn't match the distribution in the real world um, or token level data sets that we were evaluating on in, in the Knackle paper. Uh, and so I think that is sort of to account for some of the differences.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that, that's nice. I saw a talk at ACL by Verge Schwartz about doing something very similar where you build a diagnostic data set on, for NLI kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. and you get very different pictures out. Like the, I, I like this, so I'm excited to read your EMNLP paper. Uh, I guess the, the last thing I guess that um, we can talk about here is you ran a whole bunch of experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hinted at some of them. Are there any highlights from the all of the experiments that you ran that you want to tell us about?
1: Sure. Uh, so one one major thing that we tried out was uh, treating factuality detection, uh, factuality prediction on all of these data sets as a multitask problem. Because what we have is four different uh, event factuality data sets. Um, all, all of their data is collected under slightly different protocols, slightly different genres. Um, But still, at the end of the day, very similar tasks. Um, And so what we did was we... uh, So first we just tried lumping all the data together, um, so treating it as sort of the single task problem, and then uh, implementing a multitask architecture where the basic idea was that the uh, BILSTM parameters were shared across all of the data sets. Um, but then for each individual data set, we had a uh, task-specific or data set-specific, really, um, multilayer perceptron parameters um, independent. And so this actually gives us um, additional boost on on these tasks. Um, so we were able to do a little better uh, with that multitask uh, setup.
0: Yeah, I guess when the data sets aren't huge, it's not that surprising that you're going to get gains by combining the data. Right. Uh, I guess... Sometimes the problem is that uh, the data sets aren't close enough that um, sharing really helps you. Right,, uh, but in in this case, it looks like it does, so that's good.
1: Right. So yeah, this was really um sort of a prime opportunity or a really uh, prototypical case where we we thought that multitask learning might help and it and it really did.
0: Yeah, I guess another um uh, in talking with people also at Acl, we we were wondering how much of the gain of multitask learning is just from seeing more more language mm-hmm. and that if you use some large pre-trained language model, a lot of the times the gains that you see from multitask learning just go away. Mm-hmm. Because you you already because you pre trained the language model on billions of tokens you've already seen gotten the benefits from like seeing all, words in various train sets you don't get as much benefit
1: yeah I think that's that's a very real phenomenon and something that we have seen in other uh, closely related work on semantic proto role labeling we tried a bunch of different um, related semantic uh, uh, role labeling tasks and nothing worked better than uh, initializing the the BiLSTM are initializing the encoder to um, a MT a neural MT encoder, um, and so I, I think that's a very real phenomenon, and and we would definitely uh, like to look into that next and see you know how much how much we can get out of using something like Elmo, um, and and what happens in that case.
0: Interesting, great. Um, I think so. That was all the questions that I had. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we missed? Any or any last thoughts?
1: Um, so, I think. I think it would be uh, nice to mention just a, a few cases where factuality detection, event factuality prediction, might be uh, useful um, for someone of a more uh, applied NLP bent. Um, and I think that this would be in cases, for instance, in information extraction or knowledge-based population, where you know you're extracting these information tuples, and uh, you'd really like to know that what you're extracting is true according to the text. Um, And so, you know, if you imagine a sentence like uh, his birth certificate disproves conspiracy theories that Barack Obama was born in Indonesia, you know, a really naive information extraction system is going to uh, pull out, you know, an incorrect tuple here of, you know, where Barack Obama was born. Um, And so you'd really like to be able to model that uh, semantic context better and uh, know automatically whether, whether or not some tuple you're extracting is is factual or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point. I, I had meant to ask that and I forgot, so thanks for bringing it up. Mm-hmm. I guess um, if you followed work on open information extraction over the last few years, people have tried to address this because you're right, the, the naive thing to do um, just totally fails mm-hmm. in these more complex nested clauses. And so like they, they uh, add some additional context, like this was seen inside of an if or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it I guess it feels like if they had actually um, taken the, the linguistic perspective of factuality, they'd have come up with a, a stronger theory here um, where you could predict both the event that you pull out with the open IE system and predict whether or not it's factual using something like your data set. So yeah, that, that's a right. really great point. I, I think it would help.
1: Um, and I'll just also add that I think you know natural language inference is you know one of my interests and, and something that's very... Uh, uh, a big interest in the field. Uh, And I think there's a really tight connection between uh, factuality prediction and uh, NLI where, uh, you know, for instance, if you're building an NLI system and you want it to be really good, it it really should have some sense, uh, you know, whether implicitly or explicitly of uh, factuality, um, because it's going to be important in certain kinds of inferences. Like, you know, we want to be able to distinguish uh, a sentence like uh, Pat failed to water the plants versus Pat watered the plants, um, because we want to know whether the soil is dry or wet, um, and and even more directly, we can uh, recast factuality in uh, NLI is such a is such a broad framework that it's it's really powerful, um, and it can subsume these smaller uh, semantic tasks. So we can even directly recast. Uh, the task of factuality detection as, you know, premise hypothesis pairs where, you know, a a hypothesis might be something like the watering happened. And in fact, we've we've actually done this as a way to enable um, probing of uh, NLI systems. So that's maybe one other angle that, that might be of interest.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks. This was a really interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.